Tuesday and Wednesday, I was in northern Wisconsin speaking to InterVarsity leaders on the theme of my book. And then Thursday, I was in the offices in Chicago of InterVarsity Press talking with the staff and talking about the next book that I'm working on. And then Friday and yesterday, I was with World Impact leaders about two hours north of here at their conference center. So I'm here to talk about rest, and I'm a little tired. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a little tired. I mean, if you've worked hard and, and you've done good things God's given you to do, tired's a perfectly reasonable thing to feel. A little bit body tired, a little bit mind tired, that's just fine. The problem is when tired becomes chronic. You know, soul weary. That's different. Uh, burnout, brownout, that's different. We're talking about a weariness that runs deeper than something a nap or a night of sleep might start to solve. That's the kind of rest that I'd like uh, to talk about with you this morning. And, and a lot of these thoughts come out of chapter 7 of, uh, of An Unhurried Life. If you, you may or may not know that the subtitle of the book is Following Jesus' Rhythms of Work and Rest. That's the invitation. The invitation is to find in Jesus that rhythm of doing absolutely everything God's given us to do, but in a way that is sustainable. I like to think of it this way. We have all the time we need to do absolutely everything God's given us to do. God has not given us a to-do list that's too long. Sometimes I feel like my to-do list is too long. How does that happen? Well... Sometimes I add to my to-do list. Sometimes I think there's stuff I got to do, and nobody told me I got to do them. But I decided somehow I got to do them. Or my work starts to feel heavier because I add anxiety to it. That makes it, always makes it heavier. Can you appreciate that? Does that ring true at all? So as I said, the, the problem isn't that sometimes we feel tired. The, the problem is that sometimes weariness becomes chronic. We become soul restless. We become hope-weary. We become worry-heavy. And that's a kind of tiredness that's harder to recover from. I'd like to take you once again to that passage that we read just a bit earlier. It's the core passage to this message. And it's that text in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 through 11. Listen to it again. And listen especially to, to what the writer of Hebrews is saying about rest. The writer said, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his or her own work, just as God did from his. So let's therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Now, their example of disobedience, the writer of Hebrews is referring back to Psalm 95, and he's talking about Israel sort of wandering through the wilderness. And if you know anything about that story, it's not one of their bright points. Uh, It's not one of their best moments as the people of God. The grumbling, the complaining, hey, we had it so much better back in Egypt. Oh, yeah, they did. Slavery, isn't that great? Love slavery, man. I wish we could go back there. And uh, 
But as I look at this text, I'm especially captured by a phrase. Let's therefore do what? Make every effort. Okay, stop there. Make every effort. That sounds pretty intense. I'm not messing around. Sounds like hard work. We're going to make every effort here. What are we going to make every effort to do? To enter that rest. Rest for the soul can be hard work. Sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Sounds like an oxymoron. Make every effort to enter his rest. I'll just tell you that living in the rest of God requires incredible focus. Because we do not live in a restful world. Would you agree with me? Is our world encouraging us to pace ourselves well? Or is our world telling us, do more, you'll be more. Get more, you'll be more. Busier is better because, if we, because our culture defines, um, defines us by what we do. So, of course, if your identity is completely rooted in what you do, what happens if you do more? Hey, you are more then, huh? Who's going to argue with that? Well, Jesus might. Or the idea that we, if we get more, we'll be more. Isn't it strange that this season that's meant to be a time for celebrating the coming of Jesus, this Advent and then Christmas season, has become in so many ways defined by getting stuff? And that you'll have a happy Christmas if you buy this. You only have to have the TV on for 10 minutes to hear that message. You know, Black Friday and Cyber Monday, that's the, that's the reason for the season. Here it is. Except Jesus says that our lives don't consist in the abundance of our possessions. Just that a lot of my friends in Orange County would disagree. We feel like that's exactly what our lives consist of. And that my life will be much happier if I upgrade my iPhone to the one that just came out. That will improve my life immensely. And some of you inside are saying, amen, of course. <laughs> Who wants an iPhone 5? Oh, my goodness. That's so, that's so 2013. Ugh, yikes. It's weird the things that we fill our lives with thinking this will bring us deep soul satisfaction. But rest, rest is relational. Rest is something that comes in a place of communion with God. What could be more restful than this? Discovering and taking in this fact that right where you sit with the week you just had, whether it was an exciting week, a hard week, a good week, a bad week, a busy week, a quiet week, whatever the week was, you know your week, I don't know your week. But whatever it was, that right there where you sit, God really likes you. You are really a pleasure to him because you're his. I'm a dad. I've got three boys. As, uh, as uh, we said earlier, my oldest son is world famous in a band called Sounds of Satellites. You know. They just went on their uh, U.S. tour a month ago playing gigs with three and four people <laughs> at them. It was remarkable. 
Actually, it's a lot of fun. But I'm a dad of three boys, and uh, they're getting to an age now where um, they're all driving their own cars to their own places, and I see a lot less of them. Like, I came home last night from the thing I was doing, and my youngest son was at a school event, and my middle son was at work, and my oldest son was already in bed from a long day of band practice, getting ready for today, leading worship today. So, and, my, and my wife is on a retreat this weekend, you know. So it was just me at home. And so I don't see as much of my sons as I did when they were preschool and elementary school. Every once in a while, though, like this morning at about 7.30, when I was sitting in the library, my oldest son came in and sat on the couch. Sometimes when he comes in, it involves my wallet. That happens. It's all right. This morning, you just want to touch bases. Just want to hang out for a few minutes. What do you think that does for a dad's heart? Well, you know, don't you? If you're a mom, if you're a dad, you know exactly what that's worth. The father enjoys who you are. So much of our restlessness is because we're really not all that sure about that. It surprises me how often um, my friends and myself, that we will be frantically busy doing things, and somewhere in the back of our minds we're imagining this will make God like us more. Or I'll somehow be a, more of a pleasure to God if I work harder. And, and of course, God enjoys working with us and enjoys giving us good things that we can do. Of course. But in some ways, in the spirit of this, enter his rest or make every effort to enter that rest. It happens as we enter his presence. It happens as we linger and live our lives in the presence. And we discover that the presence is a restful place. Like when my son comes into my office, I'm just glad to hang out for a few minutes before he's got to drive off to, to help lead something at, a, at another church. Does that make sense? Do you feel just how much of a pleasure you are to God because simply that you are? You may not have had the most stellar week. I have weeks like that too where I'm not at my best, I say things I wish I had not said, I do things I wish I had not done. And sometimes I'm tempted to think, God's opinion of me has taken about eight notches down as a result. See, the good news is God sees much more than just my behavior in a particular moment. He sees who I am. And there's a restfulness that can come as we learn how to live in the place of God's favor, in the place of God's grace, the place of God's rest. Now, so let me take a step back and give you a little bit of context for some of what I'm talking about uh, in terms especially of our drivenness as it's related to work. Uh, here up on the screen, I'm going to give you a, uh, a quotation. First, let me just introduce it by saying that you may know 50 years ago, experts were predicting a dramatic drop in the hours worked per week by American workers 
resulting from the blessing of labor-saving technologies. And there was a book written literally 50 years ago, 1965. The title of the book was Fatigue in Modern Life. And this is what this Christian author said about the future that we were looking ahead to. This is what we could all expect. We are soon going to find ourselves confronted by a world that we do not recognize and before which even the most venturesome technicians will continue to marvel. You ready for it? Here it comes. Here's the world they envisioned 50 years from then, which is today. With abundance, leisure time will come for everyone. What will we do with it? Will the church think far enough ahead with enough freshness to be able to understand it, to make provision for it, and to respond to it, and to conduct its people to God, and to bring God back to the center of this new world? That is the problem of modern life. Is that the problem you're running into? That you have leisure just coming out your ears that you don't know what to do with? I don't think anyone in this room identifies with that idea. But you have to understand, as they looked into the future and they saw all of these remarkable technologies that enabled you to do a job that took this long, now you can do it in this much time, or this much time, or this much time. So if you've got a 40-hour job or a 50-hour job, and now all these technologies enable you to do the 50, 40-hour job in, they were guessing 22 hours would be the average work week. Or that you might work a full-time week and then be off a week. Or that you might have a standardized retirement age of 38. How many here are now retired if the standardized age is 38? Well, I'm, I've been retired for 17 years. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And this was a serious vision of what would happen. What do you think they failed to put into the equation when they envisioned this 50-year scenario in the future? What, what are some suggestions you have? I'll, I'll ask you as a group. Greed. I heard it from two different places in the exact same moment. Yeah, right? Because... If you can do this job, for which you get paid X amount of dollars, in this much time, why not do the job twice or three times and get three times the money? Right? Greed. So the irony is a lot of us, without even realizing it, are doing way more work than we did 50 years ago, just as a general rule, because we can. And that greed thing, part of the challenge of it is that as we said a little bit earlier, we live in a culture where our lives consist in the abundance of our possessions. Even though we as followers of Jesus know that he suggests the exact opposite to be true. Greed was one of the factors that were not taken into consideration. What do you think? Any other factors come to mind that you think people did not consider when they envisioned this future 24-hour work cycle, yeah, that the globalization of work, that people are working every minute of every day. And if you're in an organization with relationships outside of your immediate area, there's a whole different planet in terms of what work begins to look like. Anything else come to mind? Okay, so double-income households, the, the fact that actually it takes more and more and more work I think of living in Orange County, I think of my three sons. How in the world are they going to live 
in Orange County. I don't know. I don't know how they're going to manage it. Probably going to have to work hard and get married and find, they're all boys, so find three women who also want to work hard and somehow they'll, they'll manage to do it. Here's another thing I don't think they took into consideration. Competition. Nobody else is working 22 hours a week. I'm sure not going to. Competition. But as I said, I think the biggest contributor to our sometimes overwork is the dynamic of our culture identifying us by what we do. I am what I do. So if I do more, I am more. I've lived long enough to know that the problem with that equation is that it almost works. But it's the almost part that's the problem. Because if it almost works, then what do you need to do to try and make it work? Well, just do a little more. And then maybe you'll stretch past almost to now it works. But then you do a little more, and you still find you're in almost territory. It still hasn't quite worked. So if you are what you do, then if you do more, you are more. I think for some, when they hit a place like a midlife crisis, it's the moment where you realize you can't do anymore. That way of identifying ourselves is subject to the law of diminishing returns. What was enough to do to feel important and valuable and special then isn't enough now and won't be enough later. Does that make sense? And hence, our restless culture. We're trying to prove something through our work that, at least for us as followers of Jesus, we could know is already true. Isn't it weird to try and prove something that's already established? You are beloved already. And you could engage whatever work God's given you, work in the marketplace, work in the academy, work as a, um, a father or a mother, whatever work you've been given, you could do that work from a place of fullness. You could do that work from a place of belovedness. Instead of doing that work, trying to get something you think you need. Did, I, did my cup end up here? Could I have one of those cups? Perfect, thank you. So here's a cup. That used to be coffee. Yuck. Um, so this cup. So imagine this cup is, is like my life, okay? And um, there's a line in Psalm 23 that talks about my life is a cup. Anyone remember that line? What happens to the cup? My cup, it overflows, it says. Well, what I find often happens in the context of work and rest is that I'm kind of going around pouring from my cup into, into my jobs, into my relationships. I'm pour, 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 pour. I'm not tipping it all the way over or we'll have a mess right there. So, but, but I pour. And then what happens if I keep pouring from my cup? What kind of a cup do I end up with? An empty cup. Can any of you identify with what it sometimes can feel like when the cup is empty? And what's, what's interesting is that what often happens is I take my cup to my work trying to get something to fill my cup. I think if I go work and, and people say, man, that great job, wow, that'll fill my cup. 
Or if I, ha I have a real sense of accomplishment, that'll fill my cup. But the irony is I'm pouring out. Pour, 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 pour. In a sense, the language of the, of the Hebrews 4 passage is inviting me to be the kind of person who, who's experiencing God as the one who fills my cup. And that work is a place where the overflow of what God is filling me with becomes good work. Good work in the context of my job. Good work in the context of my home. Good work in the context of a marriage or a family or a community. There's no questions God, that God has given us good work to do. But we do the work out of abundance. We don't do work trying to get something we feel we need. Can you see the difference between those? The, the, the second one is a recipe for restlessness. But working out of abundance is an opportunity to live a restful life which is why I think that one of the greatest leadership challenges we face, and we have a slide for this, is simply the spiritual leadership of our own lives. That may be our greatest leadership. And you may not see yourself as a leader. I define leadership as influence. So I think I'm in a room full of leaders. You may not feel like you have a big scope of influence. Some of you may. But I think for each of us, the greatest opportunity and challenge is the spiritual leadership of our own lives. There's a book titled Sabbath Time. When we talk about rest, one of the best biblical words to use for that is the word Sabbath. And Tilden Edwards in his book Sabbath Time says this, An understanding and living of Sabbath time can help support a sane and holy rhythm of life for us. With it, we are given an alternative to the culture's Growing movement between driven achievement and narrow escape time. Let, before we move on, let me read that last sentence again. With this biblical understanding of Sabbath, we're giving an, given an alternative to the culture's growing movement between driven achievement and narrow escape time. The quote goes on. Instead of this deadly rhythm, we can find ourselves in the authentic, classical, Christian rhythm of ministry and Sabbath. And this rhythm intrinsically can witness to and teach much about the Christian way. So let me just talk about this real time. Yesterday in the mail, I got this. It's the, the future publications of InterVarsity Press. It's what they're going to be putting out in the next six months. Listen to some of these titles to see if you think this that I'm talking about is maybe a need. Okay. So the first one is on the back cover. It says, Rest Takes Work. And the title of the book, it was a book I got a chance to endorse, is The Radical Pursuit of Rest. It's not easy. It takes work. Here's another title that's in here. Slow Kingdom Coming. Practices for Doing Justice, Loving Mercy, and Walking Humbly in the World. Here's another title, a study guide on busyness, finding God in the whirlwind. Here's one titled, Slow Church. Now, this isn't about churches that have a relatively low intelligence level or anything. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not about that. And a little bit later, oh, no, that's the same book, but 
Just in one little window of publications, you've got all of these books on these themes. Why? Because it is a deep and profound cultural need. We're at a place where people, many, uh, get to a spot where they're just soul-weary. Just absolutely soul-weary. And one of the things I am so grateful for is that even though I've been traveling a lot and speaking a lot, I'm not tired inside. I mean, I could use a nap, and I'll get one later, you know? That's different. I don't feel, feel hope-weary inside. I feel energized inside. Because, because there's a sense that who I am and what I'm doing is a gift from God. Now, that quotation I just read you from Tilden Edwards, let me walk you through it sort of in a graphical way. So up here on the screen, you'll see this cultural cycle that uh, Tilden Edwards described. And it's the cycle between, on top, driven achievement, and on bottom, mind-numbing escape. Okay, so driven achievement is sort of a, a cult, I would say it's, it's like a cultural counterfeit of God-given work. Can any of you identify with the phrase driven achievement? Does that sound at all familiar in the culture in which we live? Like, just keep driving, keep driving, keep driving, keep driving. And you drive and drive and drive, and eventually you just get tired. And so then where do you go? Tilden Edwards suggests where we go is often, as a culture, we go to mind-numbing escape. What does that look like? Can you think of some examples of mind-numbing escape? (laughs) That can be. Any kind of media could be that, couldn't it? I mean, I'm not one of those guys who's like anti-TV or anything, okay? We, got, we actually have one of them in our home, you know. But if I sit down and five hours later I finally then get back up, I cannot remember a time at the end of that five hours or three hours or whatever it was that I got up and said, yes, man, I feel refreshed. Whew. I can't tell you how energized I am. Usually I sort of get up slightly depressed And a little bit, you know, mentally numb. Or mind-numbing escape. I'm embarrassed to say that one of the places I go is a refrigerator. You know, that uh, at 11 o'clock at night, I'm not getting ready to do two or three more hours of work that I need calories for, you know. Uh, But for some reason, there's stuff in the fridge that I think will help me rest. How does that work? But I do it sometimes. Mind-numbing escape is a counterfeit. It's a cultural counterfeit to the biblical gift of rest, which is something that happens in my soul. Okay? At the center of this cultural cycle is anxiety. That's what keeps the cycle going. This worrisome, anxious sort of energy. It's, it's at the center of this cycle of driven achievement that we finally then escape out into mind-numbing escape until we can get enough juice back to go right back to our driven achievement. This is a cycle of ungrace. It's a complete lack of grace. And in this vision down here at the bottom, in this vision of work and rest, Work is seen as demanded, whether it's demanded by someone to whom I'm accountable or whether it's demanded sort of an internal drivenness. 
It's a have to. I need to. I have to. I've got to. Drivenness. And then when we see work is demanded, almost inevitably as a result, rest begins to be seen as deserved. I deserve a break. I've been working, 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 working. I deserve. How much grace is there in that bottom sentence? Work is demanded. Rest is deserved. Demanded and deserved are way on the outskirts of any sort of grace, any sort of sense that my life in both its engagement and disengagement places is a gift. That's the cultural cycle of work and rest that we often see around us. There is a biblical cycle that uh, the author talked about. And in this biblical cycle, we have at the top ministry or work, whatever your uh, God-given work is. It may be a job, it may be a role, whatever. It's, it's what you do. It's the good you do in your life, wherever you do it. And at the bottom would simply be Sabbath, that biblical idea that goes right back to the beginning of the Scriptures. How many days in seven were given to the people of God for rest? Every seven days there was one. Do you remember how many different ways the Old Testament says what you can't do on a Sabbath? All the rules and guidelines? See, the Pharisees kind of picked up on that, and they turned the Sabbath into a you-can't day. Well, you can't this. You can't that. You can't this, that, or the other. It's like, just, well, I think I can do this. That's about all I can do on the Sabbath. And Jesus gets so angry with them. Why? Because they completely miss the fact that Sabbath is a gift. Sabbath is a gift. Sabbath isn't a you can't day. Sabbath is a you don't have to day. Because you are not what you do. You do what you are. And so in this biblical cycle between God-given work, God-given ministry, or God-given rest. At the center of this cycle is trust. Trust. Trust in the midst of our working and trust that enables us to stop working and rest. This is a life-giving cycle of grace. And in this vision, down at the bottom, instead of work is demanded, rest is deserved, suddenly we realize that all along, all of it was a gift. Work is given to us. Rest is given to us. That changes the vision of your life. Can you think of any biblical passages that talk about work as a gift? How about Ephesians 2, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 10? It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Whatever the work of your life is, God has been giving it a great deal of thought. And he has opened the way for you to engage it. Whether it's job-related work whether it's community-related work or family-related work, it's a gift. 
And when you realize your work is a gift instead of some place for driven achievement, you can step back when the time comes to enter into his rest. You can learn to work restfully. It's possible. Dallas Willard, uh, and I think I may have shared this with you in the past when I've spoken, but he was once asked, uh, or he once had a conversation with one of our uh, alumni, and he was asked, if you had just one word to describe Jesus, what word would you use? And after a long conversation, Dallas said, if I had just one, the word I would choose to describe Jesus is relaxed. What did you say? Relaxed? I remember the first time I heard that, I, I had this immediate mental image of Jesus sort of in his lazy boy recliner, you know, with the remote. I mean, I, I wasn't even confident that the idea of Jesus as relaxed even was even a good thing. It sure wasn't on my list of ideas if I only get one word to describe him. But the longer I live with that, that sort of restful vision of Jesus, the more it makes sense to me. It wasn't a statement about Jesus being lazy. Nobody's going to claim Jesus is lazy. You can't read the Gospels and claim Jesus just sat around doing nothing. We're sitting here 2,000 years later. His life still impacts everyone's life in this room. That's, that's pretty impressive, don't you think? And so this biblical cycle, this life-giving cycle of rest, is an invitation to see the whole of our lives, the work side of our lives and the rest side of our lives as a gift. How about rest is given? There's a wonderful line in Psalm 127. It's the one that says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders are laboring in vain. Or unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen are standing guard in vain. In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. Why? Well, because he grants sleep to those he loves. Rest is a gift. As I said earlier, Ephesians 2.10 is a great way to see this, that we are God's workmanship, that the good works we do are prepared by God in advance for us. Let me move on. There's a great quotation from Eugene Peterson on the theme of Sabbath. Listen to this, because I think there's a sequence in it that really is important for us to catch. He says, the Hebrew evening-morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep, okay, so at night, we go to sleep, and God begins his work. As we sleep, he develops his covenant. We wake and are called out to participate in God's creative action. We respond in faith, in work. But always, grace is previous. Grace is primary. He goes on. We wake into a world we didn't make, into a salvation we didn't earn. Evening, God begins without our help, His creative day. Morning, God calls us to enjoy and share and develop the work He initiated. Creation and covenant are sheer grace and there to greet us every morning. So what's He talking about? In the Hebrew mind, when does the day begin? Do you know? Sunset. When does our day begin? This morning, my day began when I 
reached over to my phone and it was dead because I hadn't plugged it in. And there it was, it was dead. And I, I didn't know what time it was, but that was sort of in my mental calculator. My day began today, somewhere at six something when I woke up. There's my day. In that vision of a day from one morning to the next morning, what comes first? My work. I wake up on a Monday, next thing I'm going to be doing shortly is working. And then after that, rest, right? In the Hebrew vision of a day, what comes first? If evening is the beginning of the day, then the next pretty good chunk of time is rest. The Hebrew vision is rest, then work. The common Western vision is work, then rest. Work, 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 work till I can't work anymore, then collapse into rest. Okay? The Hebrew vision is rest, and from that place of abundance, enter into your work. It's a very different vision. I like thinking that way. One of the ways I think that way is that in the evening, I will often take a moment and think into the next day's work. Just prayerfully, not worrying about it, not, oh, no, I can't believe I got all this to do, but just thinking about it a little bit in the presence of God and giving thanks for the opportunities that God's laid ahead. And I do that before I go to sleep. And when I wake up in the morning, I have this feeling like what an honor it is, what a gift it is for me to be able to be a person who does this work, whatever the work happens to be that day. In the Hebrews 4 passage, just a little bit earlier than the section we read, there's a line that says, Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today. Today. Right in the middle of Advent, in a season that's often busy, when is the time for us to enter into this rest God is giving us? And the Hebrews' answer to that question is, today is the day. But what I am tempted to say, and maybe you are too, is the answer is not yet. Maybe January 2nd, I can somehow enter his rest. Uh, I've been a youth pastor. I've been a college pastor. I've been a young adults pastor. I've been a young marrieds pastor. And it's amazing to me how at every stage there's a sense of not yet. I worked with college students, and I remember when I was working with college students, they, they were very busy. And in their minds, they thought, oh, I can't wait till I graduate college and get married. My life will be so much easier. You all snicker as though that weren't true. But it is. It isn't true, is it? I mean, I think back to college years. Man, those are the most leisurely <laughs> years of my life in a lot of ways. But, but as students, they just thought, oh, this is really frantic and busy and it's so hard and I'm not really, you know, I'm not making good decisions. About, but when I get married, no, no, that, that's... That's not how it works. I know. I'll get into my first job. Then I'll be nice and relaxed, you know, because working would be so much easier than being a student. And then it's, well, I need to get to a certain level in my job. Then I can kind of have a better pace. Except which rung do you rest on? Then I remember talking to people sort of in their mid-career, and then they're starting to talk retirement already. Oh, when I retire, then I'll relax. I will just tell you something. I talk to a lot of retired people who've lived their whole lives on driven achievement, and they don't know what to do with themselves when they retire. They have no idea how to rest. They haven't learned how to rest. They're not practiced. 
There's no magic about a job coming to a close that means suddenly you're a restful person. This rest is a relationship, as I said before. Right now, your life may be frantic and busy and full. Right now and today, God is inviting you into his rest. Right here, right now. To take a deep soul breath and know that everything is good in the presence of God. Enter his rest. I'll just go to the very last slide. What might God's invitation be to us today? I hope maybe this, this phrase from the Hebrews 4 passage will just linger with you for the rest of today and into these weeks leading up to the holidays and Christmas and all. And that in a sense you would, you would hear God saying to you personally, with your job in mind, and your life in mind. Would you join me? I think Jesus would say. Would you make every end effort to enter my rest? Join me here. Let's do our work together from a restful place. Would you join me and let's just take a moment to pray. Think about your life these days. Maybe it's your, your work, your job um, that takes a chunk of your time. Does that feel like a restful or restless place? I'm not saying you've got an easy job. I'm not, I'm not making light that many of us here have very challenging jobs with lots of expectations on us. And if we were to describe it as a yoke on our shoulders, we'd say it just feels burdensome. feels really heavy. I think that Jesus would say, but you're not alone in it. I am with you. Whatever it is that you might be carrying that just feels heavy, maybe entering his rest would simply be remembering and realizing that you're not carrying it alone. That you've not You've not been carrying this without help. It may be just the season has uh, made the to-do list longer. And again, can you realize that whatever it is you're doing, events and tasks and conversations and whatever else it is, that you are doing none of it alone. You are doing it all in the presence of one who loves to be with you the one who is the Prince of Peace. And that as you walk with him, there would be a restfulness in his presence that you could enter into and hold on to. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would help us enter your rest in the midst of wherever we find ourselves in this season. And I'm so grateful for this being something you want for us, that you're working on yourself for us, and that we could enter more and more fully in. I would love for that to be a gift that each of us in this room could unwrap at this Christmas time.
I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.